podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Summer camp doesn't initially strike fear in most people's hearts. While it's been used as the backdrop in horror movie slasher flicks, such as Friday the 13th or Sleepaway Camp, in reality, most children and teens find summer camp to be an exciting and memorable experience. No one really believes that slasher villains like Jason stalk the woods surrounding any and all summer camps. The idea of sending children to summer camp doesn't typically strike fear in the hearts of parents across the world. But what if there were real-life slasher villains who did prowl through the woods, looking for future victims? What if I told you that in a small town in Oklahoma during the 1970s, a real-life killer worse than any fictional slasher flick villain stalked the woods outside a Girl Scout camp? What if I told you that killer, who was far worse than Jason Voorhees could ever be, was never caught? What if I told you that very killer murdered three young girls under the age of 13 in the summer of 1977. This is the reality that struck Mays County, Oklahoma on June 12th of 1977. To this day, that crime is considered one of the most unsolved cases to have ever struck the Midwestern state. Hello, and welcome to the jury room where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth, from cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries. These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. June 12th, 1977 should have been the happiest day for many of the young girls who were arriving on the property of Camp Scott, which was a local Girl Scout camp located a mile outside of the town of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Locust Grove is a small town located in Mays County, Oklahoma, which is in the northeastern part of the state. It's a rural town and was even more so back in the 1970s. Nestled between the town of Locust Grove and the neighboring city of Tahlequah, once lay 410 acres that housed a compound within the forests of Locust Grove. The 410 acres, as well as the compound, was run by the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council. The compound was situated along Snake Creek and Spring Creek small streams that ran along the forest on the Locust Grove side of Mays County. Within the 410 acres compound was Camp Scott, which held upwards of 10 campsites, a great hall, as well as a swimming pool. For over 50 years, Camp Scott had hosted the local Girl Scout chapter every year. 
The event was one many young girls looked forward to, as it was a chance to be rewarded for all their hard work during the year gathering donations and working with their local Girl Scout chapter. Camp Scott was considered a popular camping destination at the time, and it was a place that many families spent time each summer. The tents along the trail were each named for Native American tribes, which highlighted the diverse history of the state of Oklahoma. June 13, 1977 would be the last day that Camp Scott ever hosted any campers. After that tragic day, the camp would close its doors, forever stifling the once laughter-filled woods around the area of Locust Grove. For three young girls assigned a tent eight at Camp Scott that day would forever stifle their laughter. What should have been a two-week stint of excitement and memorable experiences was taken from Lori Lee Farmer, age eight, Doris Denise Miller, age 10, and Michelle Goose, age nine. The three girls of tent eight, which lay along what was known as the Cookie Trail at Kiowa Campsite, didn't know each other. Yet, they easily found friendship that first day at camp as many young kids do. There's a simplicity to childhood friendships that we lose as adults, as we grow more and more into our anxieties and self-doubt. Camp Scott had staff housing, as well as camp facilities such as a medical unit and an on-site nurse. Each campsite was assigned multiple camp counselors in order to make sure that the young girls were supervised during their two weeks at the camp. For the three girls in the Kiowa campsite, there would have been three camp counselors assigned to them. 18-year-old Carla Wilhite, 18-year-old Susan Ewing, and 20-year-old D. Elder. The counselors would all be responsible for a total of 27 girls within the Kiowa campsite. Denise Milner, Lori Lee Farmer, and Michelle Goose were the three little girls assigned to Tent 8, which lay towards the outer edge of the campsite. Most of the girls who were at Camp Scott the day of June 12, 1977, were excited to be there. Everyone except for 10-year-old Denise Milner. According to her mother, Betty, Denise had spent the summer selling cookies to raise money to attempt camp. According to her mother, Betty, Denise had been so excited in the three weeks leading up to the trip, and then the day right before she was to leave for the Girl Scout camp, the 10-year-old told her mother that she didn't want to go. Betty had responded by telling her outgoing 10-year-old daughter, Denise, that she should at least try for a bit, and if after she got there she still wasn't having fun, then Betty would come and bring her home. It had struck Betty Milner as strange that Denise would go from being ex so excited to dreading the trip overnight. She chalked it up to nerves, however, and thought that once Denise got to the camp, she'd be happy she went. Denise's misgivings about going that day would haunt her mother for the next 40 years. 
Betty Milner watched as her daughter Denise went off to camp on June 12, 1977. It was the last time she would ever see her 10-year-old daughter alive. Denise Milner would arrive at Camp Scott along with dozens of other girls that day. She would go to her assigned tent in the Kiowa section of the camp. Once there, she would meet her other tent mates, 8-year-old Lori Lee Farmer from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was also the youngest camper there that day. She would also meet 9-year-old Michelle Goose, who came from a suburb of Tulsa known as Broken Arrow. The weather on June 12th was dreary and rainy. The girls spent the majority of the day moving into their tents. Seeing as the rain kept pouring down on the young campers, it was decided that the girls would stay in their tents for the day and write letters home. Denise Milner would write her last letter that day. In it, she wrote, Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day, it rained. I have three new friends, Linda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay in camp two weeks. I want to come home to see Kathy and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Kathy was Denise Milner's little sister. The sisters were very close. And it seems that Denise wanted to go home and be with her tight-knit family that day. Denise's letter bespoke a 10-year-old girl who really just wanted to go home. Lori Farmer would also write a letter home that day. Lori's letter had a different tone than Denise's. While Denise's was somber, almost desperate, Lori's would be chipper and bursting with newfound excitement over the adventure and her newfound friends. The day would turn to night and the young campers would begin to retire to their tents. It was expressed to the girls that they needed to have all lights out by 10 p.m. A feat near impossible for excited young girls on their first night of camp. The Elder, the camp counselor for Kiowa, would begin her rounds around 10 p.m. At the time of her rounds, she didn't see anything that would strike her as unusual. Just the usual reminders for young girls to turn the lights out and to be quieter so others could sleep. Midnight would roll into camp, and with it the ruckus, laughters, and sounds of the girls from Tent 6 could be heard as they made their way to the restrooms. Carla Willwhite, another one of the counselors, would go and retrieve the noisy girls and escort them back to their tents. All the while, the little girls in Tent 8 slept on, a sleep they would never wake from. An hour and a half later, Carla Willwhite would yet again have to go and correct the girls in Tent 6 as they continued to be loud. At this point, the girls were in their tent instead of the restroom being noisy. As Carla was leaving from correcting the wayward girls in Tent 6, she heard a guttural-type sound coming from the woods behind the tent. She couldn't immediately place the sound. 
She would take her flashlight and try to determine the nature of the sound. As soon as the flashlight was shown in the direction of the noise, it would stop. She assumed it was probably an animal and continued on her rounds for the evening. 3 a.m. would strike, and with it, several girls from neighboring camps down the path from tent 8 would state that they heard what sounded like a scream and someone possibly calling for their mom. No one went to check on where the screams or sounds may have been coming from. No one went to check on the little girl who seemed to have been calling out for her mom somewhere in the darkness of the woods. Not long after the scream was heard, several of the other campers would report that they heard rustling sounds coming from the direction of Tent 8. It was at this time the campers in Tent 7 reported someone opening the flap of their tent, shining a flashlight in, preventing them from identifying who it was. The drizzly rain of the day had turned into a full-blown thunderstorm in the early morning hours of June 13, 1977. While the thunder boomed across the darkened sky, the three little girls of Tent 8 were brutally assaulted and then murdered, all while the rest of Camp Scott slept. Morning would creep across Oklahoma skyline. 6 a.m. would come upon the campsite and its residents would begin to stir for the morning. Carla would awake and begin getting ready for the day. Carla would make her way towards the staff house when something on the trail caught her attention. Bundles of cloth would be strewn at the fork in the path ahead of her. Next to the cloth, she saw the form of a young girl. She lay face up on the path ahead. The young girl was naked from the waist down. Carla would run and call for the other two counselors, Dee and Suzanne, to help her check on all the girls within their care. Once everyone was assembled, it was evident that Michelle Goose and Lori Farmer and Denise Milner were all missing from the group. Carla would run to the medical station in order to grab the camp nurse in hopes of helping the young girl that lay partially naked in the path of the cookie trail. The nurse and Carla would try to come to the aid of the young girl. It was clear before they even checked for her pulse that she was gone. The girl was 10-year-old Denise Milner from Tulsa, Oklahoma. The cloth bundles would be identified as the sleeping bags that belonged to both Michelle Goose and Lori Farmer. At this point, the camp director, Barbara Day, and her husband, Richard Day, had arrived at the scene. They discovered that the sleeping bags were not empty. Inside lay the small, beaten bodies of Lori Farmer and Michelle Goose. The three little girls were all deceased. It was clear that this was not an accident. The girls had been brutally slain. Director Barbara Day would call the Oklahoma Highway Patrol and report what had happened. Investigators would soon arrive on the scene. Police would reach out to the Milner, Farmer, and Goose families. 
the parents were told that an accident had occurred. They were notified that their daughters were no longer alive. They were not provided any information as to the full details of what had happened in the night to their daughters. No one was told just who or what had happened that day at Camp Scott. Not until reporters began to arrive at the scene. Then, everyone in the state of Oklahoma would begin to learn the gruesome details of the three little girls' murders. The first patrol officer to arrive at Camp Scott was Trooper Barry, followed by the town sheriff, Glenn Weaver. According to Trooper Barry, you're just not ready to drive up on something like that and find three little girls. That's something I'll take to my grave. Realizing the severity of the case ahead of them, both Trooper Barry and Sheriff Glenn Weaver knew they would need to call in the Oklahoma State Bureau or OSBI. And now for a quick break. Witchcraft, the occult, extremist beliefs, murder. Tune in to Rogue Darkness each Friday and join host Raven as I uncover horrific crimes committed under the misconceptions and misunderstandings of witchcraft and other belief systems. I'll cover a wide range of crimes involving ritualistic killings and extremist beliefs to cult persuasion and supposed possession. Anything and everything that borders the line of horrifying. There's always three sides to a story. Side A, side B, and then the truth. Let's uncover the truth together and explore the darkness of mankind, one crime at a time. Available wherever you get your podcast fix, simply by searching Rogue Darkness. Now, back to the show. After making the call, Sheriff Weaver would then direct the camp to get all the girls loaded on buses and heading home. The remaining Girl Scouts were then ushered back to Tulsa where they were to be picked up by worried and anxious parents. Despite the girls being moved out of the camp, Weaver would adamantly dispel any rumors that the crime scene had been tampered with. Despite the fact that campers had been walking through that area to be sent home and the camp had never been officially secured until later in the day when OSBI arrived. Upon examination, it was determined that all three little girls, Lori, Michelle, and Denise, had been sexually assaulted. Lori and Michelle were thought to have been murdered within tent eight. They were both bludgeoned to death after the assaults. For Denise, it seemed that the assailant had taken the 10-year-old and led her towards the fork in the path. Once there, Denise was bound and gagged. She was then sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. Investigators would discover a size 9.5 bloody footprint inside tent 8. They also found the girls' sheets soaked with blood. One lone hair was discovered. It was thought that it belonged to someone of Native American descent. 
Finally, investigators would discover semen on the girls. Investigators suspected the girls had been bludgeoned to death with multiple weapons. They brought in searcher dogs to look for any evidence that may have been left behind during the attack on the three young girls. For OBSI, there were few leads into the possible suspects in the heinous crimes. A week later, a cave located near the camp was searched by investigators. Inside, they found a roll of tape and some sunglasses with a vinyl case. They would interview all camp counselors and staff of the camp. During the interviews, they discovered a few months prior to the murders, the camp was broken into. In April, the camp counselors discovered the staff cabin vandalized. Sleeping bags were thrown about, food was missing, and one counselor reported having some personal items go missing. Those items were the same very items found two months later in the cave just a little ways from Camp Scott. Not only had their camp been vandalized, but there had been an effigy of a man hanging from a tree, as well as a note left in an empty box that stated they would return to kill three campers. They would also find four to five sheets of notebook paper with the words kill written over and over again. The counselors wouldn't take the threat seriously and threw the notes away. Two months later on June 11th, counselors would find a tent that had been cut open by a knife. On June 12th, three Girl Scouts would lose their lives to a gruesome murderer. Not only had investigators found items stolen from the camp two months previously, but they would also find long sought after evidence leading to a possible suspect. In the cave, they found items belonging to a prison escapee, one that had been on the lam for four years. That prisoner's name was Jean Leroy Hart, a convicted rapist and kidnapper. Jean Leroy Hart had gone on the run in 1973 when he escaped from the Mays County Jail. Hart had been convicted and sentenced for the kidnapping and rape of two young pregnant women from a local bar. Hart had nabbed the women and forced them at gunpoint into the back of his trunk. After abducting the women, Hart had then taken them into the woods where he sexually assaulted them, bound and gagged them, and then after the brutal attack he left them for dead, lying naked in the woods. The women survived, however, and were able to make their way to the local police station after escaping their restraints. Once there, they were able to give authorities a detailed account of their assailant. They also provided authorities with a partial license plate number and the make and model of their attacker's vehicle. Officers identified the vehicle as belonging to then 22-year-old Jean Leroy Hart. Hart had been something of a local legend in Locust Grove. He had been a football legend in the small, rural Oklahoma town. He'd been known as a great athlete in his youth, playing football and basketball for the Locust Grove high school teams. He was part of the Cherokee Native American tribe, 
and had been considered a quite good-looking young man. The town was shocked when Jean Leroy Hart would be arrested and subsequently charged with first-degree rape and two counts of kidnapping. He would plead guilty and was given two concurrent 10-year sentences, serving his time at the Mays County Prison. In 1969, after having served only three years for the rapes and attempted murders, Hart was granted parole and released from prison. He only served three years for the sexual assault and attempted murder of two young pregnant women. Now a free man, Jean Leroy Hart would decide to go on a week-long burglary spree. From June 1st through June 7th of 1969, Hart would break into four homes. He would go on to steal wallets and purses from the homeowners. The last home he would invade would be that of Tulsa Police Officer Heather Campbell. Officer Campbell had just returned home from a shift at the precinct. As she settled back in for the night, she heard someone rattling the knob of the door to her apartment. Someone was trying to force the lock on the door. Within a few seconds, the door gave and an arm came reaching through the doorway. Officer Campbell was in reach of her weapon and acting on instinct, she drew the hammer back on her gun. The sound startled the intruder. The arm quickly withdrew from the room and back through the doorway. Campbell called the police and officers were immediately dispatched to the apartment complex. Upon arrival, officers would spot a man trying to force open the lock of yet another one of the building's apartments. The intruder was Jean Leroy Hart. Hart wouldn't resist arrest and was brought back once more before a judge for the break-ins and subsequent robberies. Hart was once again sent to Mays County Prison. In 1973, Hart escaped the prison, going on the run and remaining at large for four years. There had been a fugitive warrant out for Hart's arrest since his escape. The cave showed that rapist and potential murderer Jean Leroy Hart had been within three miles of Camp Scott sometime in the recent weeks. Investigators now had a prime suspect in the murders of Denise, Lori, and Michelle. The Mays County District Attorney would state at a news conference on June 23rd that the state would be charging Jean Leroy Hart with the murders of the three young girls. Only 10 days after the murders, the largest manhunt to have ever occurred in the state of Oklahoma was conducted in search of the now 33-year-old Jean Leroy Hart. Armed with planes for aerial searches, civilian volunteers, and of course, other officers, nearly 600 searchers descended on the nearby acres of Locust Grove. A 10-mile perimeter search would lead to the finding of a t-shirt, brown fatigue-style jacket, and some footprints that investigators made casts of to compare against the one found at Camp Scott. Not everyone in the small town of Locust Grove was convinced that Jean Leroy Hart 
was a child rapist and killer. There were still many people in the town who saw Hart as a victim of an unfair justice system. People were vehemently divided on the question of whether or not Jean Leroy Hart had raped and violently murdered three innocent little girls. The idea that the local legend and athlete could be the perpetrator of such a heinous act seemed unfathomable to many folks within the town of Locust Grove. While the search was vast and extensive, investigators would soon lose the trail of the prison escape and convicted rapist. Hart would once more disappear into the Oklahoma woods he had grown up in. The search would continue for months. Around the 10 month mark, officials finally were able to catch a break in the search for Oklahoma's most heartless killer. On April 6, 1978, OSBI agents received a tip regarding Jean Leroy Hart's possible location. They would be called out to a small wooden shack in eastern Cherokee County, only 30 minutes away from Camp Scott. The shack belonged to a Hart family friend by the name of Sam Pigeon. OSBI and even the FBI descended onto the small shack. Once inside, they promptly found Jean Leroy Hart within the residence. Hart was removed from the home in handcuffs and dragged back to face charges of the murders of 8-year-old Lori Farmer, 10-year-old Denise Milner, and 9-year-old Michelle Goose. Three little girls who deserved to grow up and not fall victim to such a cruel and monstrous act. Chief investigator for OSBI, Dick Wilkerson, was quoted as stating, he believed then and believes now that they had captured the killer, a sentiment many folks would agree with given the evidence piling up against Gene Leroy Hart. It would be almost two years after the brutal slayings that Hart would finally go to trial for the murders of the young Girl Scouts. During the trial, prosecution drew attention to the fact that the hair found within Camp 8 looked to share microscopic similarities to the sample taken from Jean Leroy Hart. Near Hart's family home, a roll of tape was found that matched the tape found at the crime scene. Witnesses even placed Hart within the property lines of Camp Scott 16 days before the girls' murders. The defense threw out the accusation against Hart as baseless, arguing that the size 9.5 shoe print found and casted at Camp Scott did not match Jean Leroy Hart's size 11.5 shoe. They would argue that only evidence against their client was purely circumstantial at best. On March 31, 1979, the jury picked to rule the trial of Jean Leroy Hart would go to deliberate. After four hours, the jury would return from sequester. They would acquit 33-year-old Jean Leroy Hart from sexual assaults and murders of Denise, Michelle, and Lori. Hart wasn't a free man, however. 
He still had to answer for the burglaries he had been imprisoned initially for back in 1969. In that instance, Hart was sentenced to a total of 305 years for the prison escape and robberies. As far as the courts were concerned, Jean Leroy Hart was innocent of the atrocities perpetrated against the three little girls in the woods of Locust Grove. Jean Leroy Hart would be sent to McAllister State Penitentiary to serve out the remainder of his sentence. However, Hart would be dead within two months of arriving to the prison. The then 35-year-old former athlete would suffer a major heart attack while walking on the treadmill. Hart would not survive the heart attack, and with his passing, any answers as to just who may have murdered Denise, Michelle, and Lori died with him. Years would tick by, and the murders of the Oklahoma Girl Scouts would grow colder and colder. And now, for a quick break. In August of 1980, Carol Bundy confessed her connection to the Sunset Strip Slayer who had been terrorizing Los Angelinos all summer. In September of 2012, the cult of the Unification Church, also known as the Moonies, mourned the death of their leader, Sun Myung Moon. Tune into Murder Murder News every Friday to hear us detangle another twisted tale from true crime history. If you're an amateur sleuth who hopes to someday solve a cold case or locate a missing person, tune into Murder Murder News and start off your search with a deep dive into some fascinating and very solvable cases. We always take a victim-first stance and like to focus on crimes affecting marginalized communities, which typically don't get enough media attention. Subscribe to Murder Murder News wherever you get your podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. Now, back to the show. In 1989, investigators would take the semen that had been found on the three little girls and try to run it against hearts to see if it was a match. The results were inconclusive from those tests. It was thought that Hart did match three out of the five results for the semen analysis, however. In 2007, a federal grant was given that would allow OSBI to try and have the DNA found at the crime scene analyzed for a potential match. Unfortunately, time had not been on the investigator's side, and what little samples had remained were too far degraded to obtain a substantial amount of sequencing from. Rumors have sprung up over the years that if Hart was the predator who murdered these innocent children, Perhaps he hadn't acted alone. Thoughts and suspicions have been recounted time and again that it is very possible that Hart had been working with a female accomplice in order to carry out the atrocious crime. In 2008, DNA testing would show a female DNA link within the remaining evidence. The DNA in question did not match the three girls leaving it open that perhaps the theory has more truth to it than not. 
the families of Lori Farmer and Denise Mildner filed a $5 million civil suit against the Magic Empire Council as they were responsible for the girls at the camp that day. Unfortunately for the families and the jurors ruled in favor of the council, the girls' families would lose their daughters, the charges against the only suspect would be dropped, and there would be no one held accountable for their lost children. In recent years, the overgrown lot that once held laughter of young, precious girls would be bought by a private citizen. There are remnants of 1977 in the camp that once stood there littered throughout those woods of Locust Grove. In an interview, Denise Milner's mother, Betty, was asked if she felt that Hart was the killer. Her response was, Was he the killer? Only God knows for sure. I do believe in God. Justice would be served regardless, and that crime was too powerful for man to serve justice. Betty Milner would go on to state, I'm not sure I understand what people mean by closure. To me, what I think about is she's still dead, and the things that happened to her happened to her, no matter what the law decides. At this time, there has been no other suspects charged in the murder of the three Oklahoma Girl Scouts. It remains one of the oldest unsolved cases in Oklahoma state history. The scars from the night of June 13, 1977, still reach their tenuous veins throughout time. That night was the darkest night to ever hit the rural town of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. It was the night a predator stalked through the woods and perpetrated one of the nation's worst crimes to this day. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. T.S. Eliot Some cases start with an ending, and then we go backwards in time, picking through the remains to see if we can find a simple semblance of the truth of what just led to the end results. February 28th, 1993 would begin with a government raid on a compound located in Waco, Texas. The siege would lead to a 51-day standoff between the apocalypse cult known as the Branch Davidians, their leader David Koresh, and law enforcement officers. We know the standoff would end in bloodshed on April 19, 1993. 76 people would lose their lives and the Branch Davidians would go down in history as one of the worst cults in American history. The question remains, what led to the standoff and what led to the reaction 
from all parties involved in the events of those days. Join me for the next episode of The Jury Room, where we dissect the Waco siege and cult leader David Koresh and explore the lead-up to the 51-day standoff between the cult and law enforcement officers.